0: Let's get going. Welcome everybody to this latest UK and Changing Europe uh, webinar. Today we're looking at a report we've just released. And no, it's not Sue Gray's report. It is the infinitely more interesting UK and Changing Europe compilation, reviewing how the government is making use of its new post-Brexit freedoms. Where are we already diverging? Where are Are there gleams in the eyes about the possibilities of future divergence? And is that going to win lots of votes or is it actually just going to impose a bunch more burdens on business? We've timed this to coincide with the second anniversary of the UK formally leaving the EU 13 months after the end of the uh, Brexit transition. The government, too, is publishing its ideas. We've had a statement from the Prime Minister and the Attorney General about how they're proposing to take this big Brexit opportunities agenda forward. So where are we after all that? Well, that's what we're gonna be discussing for the next hour and a quarter. I'm Jill Russell. I'm a senior research fellow at UK and Change Europe, and I am joined by an absolutely tip topo panel. So joining me are uh, report editor, heavy lifter, uh, man who did all the work, Anand Menon's front person on this, uh, our researcher, Joel Roland. Uh, then we're joined by two of our most distinguished senior fellows at UK in a changing Europe, Professor Jonathan Portos from King's College London, and Professor Sarah Hall from the University of Nottingham. and then two external commentators to give us a much wider view than focusing down on those sort of narrow narrow, rather nerdy subjects. So I'll ask whether this really is the agenda that's going to carry the Prime Minister forward to his uh, to a, would it be fifth conservative term. Uh, joined by Robert Colville, who wrote the hugely successful manifesto for the 2019 election, along with one or two others, I'm sure he would say, and uh, comments regularly in the Sunday Times, and I think is uh, Director of the Centre for Policy Studies. And last but known by no means least, Matthew Holhouse. Matthew is the British politics editor of The Economist. Uh, we want you to join in. This is an opportunity for you to post all your questions. So please join us on Slido, post questions there, but I'm anticipating quite a lot of questions, not least because there are already a lot of questions and we haven't even started. So if someone has asked, albeit much less well than you would have done, a question that's broadly similar to the one you would ask, please uh, upvote it. So it moves the top of my screen and I will therefore reflect popular preferences uh, in what we ask, so please get upvoting. But of course, if nobody's asked your particularly intelligent question, then do post it as well. So that's what we're gonna do, getting going for an hour and 15 minutes, and let's just hope that Sue Gray's report isn't published while we're on air, so we can focus entirely on a much bigger issue party time or not in Downing Street. So some of you will have already read and digested the report, but a few of you may not have done. So I'm going to kick off with my colleague Joel Relland. Joel, uh, what for you are the headlines from this, uh, this report that we put out today?
1: Thanks, Jill. Um, I think kind of the most notable thing when you kind of read our report kind of in the large is, despite the fact there's been quite a lot of recent criticism of the government for not making the most of Brexit, you know, for not seizing the opportunities which come with taking back control of lawmaking, that actually quite a lot is going on. There really are a lot of plans uh, kind of in development across Whitehall. The problem is uh, they're often at the early stages and often seem somewhat contradictory. There's perhaps a lack of a unifying idea if we want to think about what's going on in terms of divergence I think it's helpful to look uh, in terms of three different categories the first are changes which happened as a result of the TCA which was agreed with the EU um, it's easy to forget sometimes that our immigration and trading systems changed overnight a year ago there's no longer free movement from the EU and there are new non-tariff barriers to trade with the EU and there are kind of as it shows in the report quite um, clear consequences of that already in terms of imports and exports with the EU down more significantly than the rest of the world. It's not just a pandemic effect. And also EU migration. Again, there are lots of job shortages, but they just seem especially acute in areas particularly reliant on EU labour. So there are some practical examples of things having changed. And other areas as well where the government is getting underway, there's a subsidy bill to try and simplify the state aid regime, get money into industries to kind of you know pursue Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda, and there's also reforms to the common agricultural policy, rewarding farmers more for um, environmental aims rather than simply using their land for production. There are a second set of areas where less happened as a result of the TCA. We transplanted EU law in, but we have the freedom to diverge if we so wish. In this set of areas, um, less is going on at the moment. Uh, Plans appear in the earlier stages, with a couple of exceptions. One being financial services, where the Treasury seems to be looking to liberalise rules quite a lot, not get close to the EU, but rather simplify EU rules and also data privacy, the potential to uh, get rid of some aspects of EU GDPR regulation, which could have consequences for trade with EU. As a result, there could be less market access. Um, a third set of areas are emergent sectors where there are potentially less cost diversions or fewer costs because there is less EU legislation to move away from. We're talking about AI uh, we're talking about potentially gene editing. We're talking about um, lots of digital kind of yeah emerging points, also financial technology, this kind of stuff. And again, here, um, plans go in their early stages. There's not a clear direction of travel at the moment. We're kind of just getting underway with discussions. So kind of the, the point to take away is divergence is still in the early stages. I think it's premature mm. to ask what happened to Brexit say so that mm. it's all over. Plans take a while to emerge. Mm. And that's something that I hope we can discuss throughout the day.
0: Brilliant. OK, well, that sets us up very nicely. So, Jonathan, you you concentrate on migration policy. You know a lot about that, worked in government on that, as well as uh, at uh, King's College London. This is, for many people, the big prize of Brexit was the ending of free movement in UK, taking back control of its borders, So what does that look like? Have we really done that? And what are we doing with that new found power?
2: Um, Well, um, the short version is, uh, yes, we have. And this is probably uh, the biggest single area of divergence or change um, post-Brexit, in my view. Uh, You know, the once the UK had decided that it was going to end free movement and leave the single market. Um, That meant uh, that we had to have a new immigration regime in the sense, you know, that choice, which was made uh, pretty soon after the Brexit vote, and certainly by the time of Theresa May's party conference speech in late um, 2016, meant that we needed a new immigration system. And um, this is one area where uh, the Essentially, we have got what we were promised. Uh, That is to say, um, Vote Leave uh, promised us a migration system which treated um, everybody pretty much the same, regardless of where in the world they came from. Um, And that is, uh, with the exception of Ireland, uh, that is pretty much what we have got. We have got a regime that means that if you are moving to the UK to work, Uh, or indeed um, to join your your spouse or partner, um, then the rules that you have to follow are the same whether you're coming from from France um, or Brazil or Canada or Pakistan. Um, So uh, uh, we've got what we, uh, uh, you know, but of course um, that didn't say anything about what the rules are. So what are those rules? Um, And the interesting thing here is that Theresa May Um, And perhaps some of those who supported uh, Brexit wanted um, a system that would lead to a substantial reduction in net migration. Um, That is to say, they wanted to level down. They wanted essentially to apply the same rules to um, Europeans that we applied to non-Europeans, which at that time, because Theresa may have been Home Secretary for so long before being Prime Minister, um, and because she was trying to hit David Cameron's net migration target, were pretty restrictive. Uh, they included um, a quota on the number of skilled workers who could come here uh, and some quite restrictive rules um, and thresholds who could come here. The system we've got now um, does not represent that leveling down. Um, it's much more a sort of meat in the middle. Um, it's a system which is considerably less restrictive than the one that previously existed for non-Europeans, although considerably more restrictive than free movement, obviously. Um, So we have a system that has a salary threshold. Basically, you can come here if you have a job offer that pays more than about 25,000 pounds a year. Um, And that job is in an occupation with a, you know, that requires skills, basically at the level of 2A levels and above or so. Um, And that is a pretty liberal system by international standards. It means that according to my calculations, um, which the Home Office, has sort of informally confirmed that approximately half of all jobs in the UK are in principle open to uh, people from outside the country. In other words, one of every two jobs that are currently where, where there is an employer, the employer could in principle offer that to a, to, to a non-Brit um, and that person could secure a visa on the basis of that job offer to come here. There's also been reduction, the quota has been abolished, there's been the resident labor market test, which meant that you had to show in principle that you couldn't get a Brit to do the job, that's been abolished. Um, And there's also a special health and care visa that means for people coming to work in the NHS, the restrictions are even less, uh, 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 You know, there, there are even fewer restrictions. So this is by international standards, a pretty liberal system, And for non-European, it's a more liberal system, I would say, than probably any European country applies. So um, in this sense, we've made a pretty big change. Um, It's not a change which necessarily means that we'll have uh, um, more net migration. We'll probably have slightly lower net migration because of the end of free movement, but it's equally not one that will lead to a radical reduction in migration. And indeed, the first results of the new system have Somewhat to my surprise, I have to say, because I didn't think the Home Office would be able to get it up and running so quickly, that they have, um, and uh, you know, those of us who doubted them on that have to put their hands up and say we were wrong, uh, credit there. Um, uh, the first results of this new system show uh, that actually visas have gone up quite significantly. We've seen um, a, a very substantial increase in the number of student visas issued, also liberalized. Um, And a lot of people coming in under the new healthcare route. Um, And that's all, you know, so even before the end of the pandemic, we're seeing some significant uptake in immigration from outside the EU. Um, Uh, Sorry. I
0: was going to say, and that's despite the fact that it's quite a high cost migration regime.
2: It is a high cost migration regime, uh, um, you know, and it's particularly so if you want to stay here for a long time or if you want to bring your family and so on. But even despite that, we are seeing increases in the number of people coming here on dependent visas as well as on on main visas. Um, So the cost, while it obviously is an obstacle for some people, overall does not seem to be as much of a barrier as you might have feared. So what's the the net economic impact of this? Well, I think the first thing I'll say is that those of us who uh, um, warned of the substantial negative net economic impacts of leaving free movement, uh, uh, you know, have had our worries considerably assuaged, I think, you know, compared to the sort of system Theresa May would have introduced. This system seems to me to be, you know, if I had to guess, might be neutral overall rather than negative. Mm -hmm. It is a considerable improvement on what where we could have been. Um, Does that mean we will have significant economic gains? I don't know. Um, You know, it is a much more Managed system in the sense that it requires mm-hmm. a lot. You know, there is more Whitehall environment at mm-hmm. the moment. There's more bureaucracy, more visas, more central planning from Whitehall and Westminster, mm-hmm. as it were. So talking about this as a sort mm-hmm. of uh, a, a move to a a much more liberal uh, in mm-hmm. the economic sense regime, I think is is not quite right. Um, but in terms of the long term economic mm-hmm. impacts, I think we can be considerably less worried than, than we would have been two or three years ago so i'll stop there for the moment
0: okay that's that's really interesting that's an area where the uk is imposing its new policy preference but they might not be quite what some people expected we'll come on to that in a second but sarah in our report we note financial services is an area where we could have stayed aligned um we spent much of last year and uh waiting for an equivalence decision, you know, puts the time we've been waiting for Sue Gray's report into the shade. We never got it. Uh, So is the UK now striking out on its own on financial services? And what have we learned so far about where they're going?
3: Yeah, so I very much agree with um, you and Joelle that financial services does appear to be one of the economic sectors that's attracting significant attention in Whitehall in terms of the prospects for divergence. We saw this quite clearly in Rishi Sunak's um, agenda for post-Brexit financial services in his mansion house speech. Um, we saw it in the Tigger report, which was identifying uh, regulatory opportunities and um, post-Brexit. And then in the comments from the Prime Minister just today, he um, argues that he's looking for an ambitious approach to financial services and um, post-Brexit. So uh, to get to that position where the UK is emphasising the um, regulatory opportunities from Brexit, financial services has actually come quite a long way over the process of the Brexit period. So um, the UK is a financial services powerhouse. It was before Brexit and it still currently is. And early on in the Brexit process, I think the sector had some expectations that um, Almost regardless of what form of Brexit took in other policy domains, there might be the prospect for some sort of special carve out for financial services, whereby it maintained a degree of market access um, to the EU. As Brexit um, proceeded in the uh, 2010s, it became increasingly clear that that special treatment of financial services wouldn't be available. uh, Without free movement, there'd be no special market access for UK financial services. That's really significant because in 2019, figures show that the EU accounted for around 40% of UK financial services exports. And they were on the back of something called Passporting, which essentially allowed firms in the UK to service EU clients from from their UK base. I think it's important to note that, you know, the the UK didn't trade exclusively with the EU in financial services. There's a long history of London as an international financial centre. And perhaps the period of EU membership is best seen as a period of tightening integration between the UK and the EU on top of those um, international trading relationships. But it is clear, I think, that Brexit marks a break in terms of that period of tight integration between the UK and the EU. So without passporting, the UK um, became reliant on what are called equivalence decisions, and that allows financial services trade in specific areas where the EU designates that the UK is equivalent to and the EU in regulatory terms. I think one of the big surprises, and, and again this sort of narrative of how far financial services has come over the Brexit period, and um, is around the TCA. I think when the TCA was agreed, there was a sense that that might unlock additional equivalence decisions, that it might foster a relationship of trust between the UK and the EU, which would support additional market access for the UK. And that categorically hasn't happened. So the UK has two equivalents, um, sorry, was given two equivalence decisions. One is now expired, so it has one, um, which is considerably fewer than what we would see as competitor financial centres like New York or Singapore. And um, the UK has taken a very different approach to equivalence of the EU compared to the, the EU itself. So the UK has a much more liberal approach to equivalence for um, EU-based financial services. Uh, the UK's system emphasises kind of negotiation, trust, and, and tries to point towards longevity. And the EU's approach to equivalence emphasises its temporal nature. So these decisions could be revoked within um, 30 days' notice. So currently the UK is is operating with markedly less market access formally than other competitor financial centres. What happens next I think is really interesting. Faced with that uh, uh, radically decreased market access the UK has turned to look at what regulatory um, divergence it might be able to develop and we've seen and there are a number, a really significant number, of reviews going on concerning the UK's financial services rulebook. Um, Some of these try to um, learn lessons from other uh, regulatory approaches. So we could think about the Hill listings review, Mm. which tried to think about how tech firms listed in the US and whether the UK could be made attractive in that sense. Some of them focus on particular parts of financial services that the UK is seeking to develop. Um, And I think we might come on to this, but here, green finance and fintech would be two areas that the UK um, is prioritising. I think it's important to note that trade deals in and of themselves are probably less important for financial services than some other sectors of the economy. And and that's common for the service sector. But some bilateral agreements um, could be very important. So potential um, recognition between the UK and, and Switzerland, for example. So the UK, I think it is true to say, has identified a number of areas where it's seeking to diverge. And um, I think what's critical, though, is that the more the UK diverges, the less likely um, positive equivalence decisions from the EU would, would likely to be. Um, so I think it's important to think about the opportunities, but also which doors might shut by um, going down uh, that route
0: OK, that's uh, really interesting. So those are two areas where the UK really is sort of, you know, uh, doing things differently as a result of Brexit. Robert, I am to come to you next. Is that what you think the Brexit coalition that propelled the Boris Johnson government to power two years ago were looking for? Um, what, is there much more to be done? We've seen the Prime Minister you know, talking up some of the sort of rather minor changes like, uh, you know, using pounds and ounces, this crown stamps things on beer glasses. You know, what actually gets the juice of sort of Brexit supporters going? Is it, you know, the chance to have our own green taxonomy or to rebalance migration or what are they really looking for in this agenda?
4: Sure. Um, so, um, apologies for also for being slightly twitchy on the screen. Um, this is this this event is a wonk's nightmare because um, while we've been talking, <laughs> the government has published the full one hundred page. Uh, Documents um, listing uh, its deregulatory uh, agenda since Brexit, um, fleshing out uh, the, the the statement in press we got we got the, today. So I'm trying very hard <laughs> to resist just sort of putting you on mute and um, and diving into the details. Um, don't
0: don't put us on mute.
4: Well, yeah. <laughs> the um so uh, the the answer is obviously that there was never one uh, one Brexit, a never one Brexit cause. Um, The most arguably the most committed Brexiteer in British politics is John McDonnell, uh, who published earlier than pretty much any senior Tory, published a a, a paper, which I could never get anyone interested in, um, (laughs) arguing that we needed to leave the EU because it was a capitalist conspiracy preventing the creation of a of a left wing utopia. And, um, you know, um, privately, uh, Tory, privately, Labour left, left, Labour left people will say that Jeremy Corbyn would sort of come up to them and whisper, good luck. Uh, during the referendum campaign, so like there's, there is the, the 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 idea that the the idea that Brexit and and sort of Singapore on Thames are are co, co equal is um is not true um not I mean and you, not least you you know the the campaign to for the Brexit campaign itself was one which was you know it was it wasn't three hundred fifty million quid a week to cut your taxes it was three hundred fifty million quid quid a week for the NHS um and um you know even Boris Boris Johnson there's a straight there's a very strange thing when he when he stands for Tory leader, he's he's standing there promising to be Michael Heseltine. He's listing his campaign promises, which are: I will hire more public servants, and I will spend more money on infrastructure. And the the most rabid right wingers in the Tory party are cheering from the rafters because mm-hmm. he is also promising to do to do Brexit. Um, and then there is this there's so you know the, the things you can do with Brexit are not uh, there is a wide range of, as 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 everyone's pointed out so far the mm-hmm. there is you, there's a wide range of things you can do with Brexit. Um, and in fact, you know, some of the ways they are using their freedoms are not way are explicitly not way think, ways that uh, free market um, Singapore and terms types would like. So I, for example, um, I'm pretty like the the state aid rules of the EU. I think a pretty good uh, way of stopping com- countries distorting their markets. And um, I think it's it's slightly weird that we are we are you know we are we are making use of our post Brexit freedoms to 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 enable government to pick more winners which i personally don't think is a good idea but it's what the um, you know but it's 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 a popular idea and it's what the um, it's what the government wants to do like um so um that said i think there is a there is a tension within the conservative party you saw it within uh, when within the brexit mm. movement you saw it with lord frost's um uh, resignation and i wrote about it in my sunday times column a, a few weeks ago mm. that there is just yes there is a general feeling that, you know, that, that things haven't gone far enough fast enough that you know the point of Clean Brexit, hard Brexit. That we you know, we went for the type of Brexit which maximised our opportunities to diverge, rather than you know maximising opportunity rather than minimising damage. That was the that was the switch from May to Johnson. But you know, the, but but as yet the they, there haven't been as many. Of, you know, as the, the divergence has not been as clear as. Except on, uh, for example, immigration, the divergence has not been as clear as many expected, and I think part of that is about the um, the nature of the government. Um, um, you know the, the, you know this this this. Um, the uh you know the, the more interventionist uh, more kind of actually more sort of christian democrat kind of version of conservatism that Boris Johnson likes. Um and um part of it is about the um just the you know the 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 fact that government moves extremely slowly. I mean you're referring to financial services mm-hmm. you know it's 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 going to be quite a few years since between Rishi Sunak making out speech and mm-hmm. then and the and the changes actually mm-hmm. actually coming in. Likewise there are other areas where for now we are we are going along with the EU's rules um uh, GDPR would be a classic one where government really does want to do something different but like working out what that different thing is takes time there's also the fact that there is a tension here between the status quo and, and, and the future um the the, the chemicals directives is, is, a, is a pretty mm-hmm. good one um you know under the EU we were part of reach um you know quite a lot of people said this is extraordinarily extraordinary cumbersome bureaucratic other countries have much better uh, approaches to this can't we you know copy them when we when we come out and they you know if you but, but when they go to the chemicals industry um, and this kind of applies to other industries they mm-hmm. say no you know we we, we we spent a load of money working out how to use these current rules we don't mm-hmm. want new rules coming in so there's a tension between existing companies there and the innovation and dynamism you might create by opening by opening mm-hmm. things up versus the costs of having to follow two regulatory systems at once so i think there's a sort of growing sense in government that the opportunities are, are, are sort of down the line. It's it's the it's the this is the focus on the future. The things like things like gene editing, AI, machine learning, so, so, you know, whatever. Um, essentially, the, the the if your central diagnosis of the EU completely accurately, in my view, is uh-huh. that it is an immensely uh, cumbersome, bureaucratic, uh, risk-averse uh, organization which takes you know years to make any decisions mm. and then probably makes the wrong ones. The idea that you can move faster on um, on on things as they come up, like you know, blockchain uh, would be another one. That's that's a pretty attractive idea. Um, the issue there is that you still have the same civil servants and the same regulators are uh, making the decisions. So I think one of the interesting things you're seeing is. Is, is is the regulatory debate is, is becoming a debate within Britain as opposed to a, a debate between Britain Britain and, and and Europe? There's quite a there's quite a lot of talk. Um, I mean, government and I, I've written about this before, and I suspect once I start googling it, it'll start searching. It'll be in this new white paper about like pushing regulators to take more to have more. Uh, take more account of growth and innovation as as objectives our british regulators right. are kind of there was this phenomenon of gold plating eu regulation that we were very very you know even we, we we sort of took it very seriously and and made you know right. absolutely were, were absolutely risk-averse in a way right. that some other countries weren't so i think this is there is a lot of there, there's a lot of things which are live here and i don't think we i don't think we can, although some do I, I don't think we can at all make the, the judgment that that you know that we haven't that like it's, it's 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 basically way too early to make any make any judgments but it's certainly you know it's certainly clear that the political space within the UK was never there for a with one bound we were free kind of kind of a, approach to this um and um but that said there is still space I think to do a lot more uh, than they're currently doing and I, and I hope they will carry on in that direction.
0: Matthew um Robert's talked about the political space that Brexit and the type of Brexit that we saw in the trade and corporation agreement with minimal alignment has opened up. Is that a space the public is really having voted for Brexit 5248? Is that a space that the public is very keen to see the government move into? Is there a sort of big public appetite for all these Brexit dividends?
5: Yeah, so my my take on, on sort of public opinion is that it's um, it is a real constraint on how radical you can be. You know, if you're talking about changing your whole sort of social and econ- economic model off the back of Brexit, as some Brexit is, not all, as Rob points out, but, uh, you know, a, a section of the Conservative Party imagined public opinion is a hindrance on that. Um, I don't think it's the sort of the absolute prohibition on innovation and, and reform that is sometimes cast us. Cast and I don't actually think it's the most sort of important constraint either. Mm-hmm. I think the most important constraint is probably more one of um, political failure rather than anything that the public opinion does. Um, we, so, so to, to The way I sort of think of this sometimes is that you know J- Johnson's idea of Brexit in, in 2016 was sometimes described as cakeist, in that there was this, uh, remember back in 2016, a lot of the thinking in the language was very, very cloudy and muddy, but there was this idea that you would have really, really deep uh, market access and have the ability to, to diverge at the same time. So it's having your cake and eating it, um, as Lord Frost kind of characterises it. We're now in this position, not of being cakeist, but anti cakeist, and that Britain has surrendered quite a lot of market access and paid a very very high political, uh, very very high economic price to do that. But actually, isn't isn't doing a huge amounts of radical divergence to compensate for that. So really, it, it, it is looking like the, you know, the worst of both worlds. Um, now, what, what what role does public opinion play in that? Um, th- this, the starting point you might take actually is is the speech that Theresa May did, uh, at Mansion House, in twenty eighteen, because because she, she could you know she could see this trajectory of, mm. of a trajectory of Britain uh, surrendering a lot of market access and and not actually doing a lot with it. And, and in this speech, she's really she's talking to the EU, but she's also trying to confront her own benches. And in it, she says that you know even if you did. Embark on this uh, relationship with the Casperton in into, into the mid-Atlantic, he wouldn't be able to do a lot with it because she said, you know, that the, the UK could not engage in a race to the bottom on standards and protections because there is no serious political constituency in the UK that would support this, quite the opposite. Now that 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 line is actually kind of borne out in, in a lot of the polling. Um, uh, you know, and position of anti-cake is kind of where the British public are in that they voted to leave the EU, but they're also quite averse to doing a lot of so the really radical things that might start to compensate for that. Uh, John Curtis has done a lot of work on this, as, as is the IPPR. We know, for example, that the, the British public were really keen on the EU's ban on mobile phoning, mobile phone roaming charges. Uh, we know that British people really like EU's consumer mm-hmm. protection laws. We, we know famously that the British public is averse to uh, moving the the um, SPS regime, the food standards regime, to something closer to that found in America with all the sorts of uh, production processes that they have in, in the meat industry there. Uh, we know that the British public is uh, keen on the current labour laws. Uh, things like getting rid of the working time directive uh, polls very badly. And you see this manifest itself from time to time, sometimes in a way that is justified and well-informed, sometimes a way that a little bit off-beam in, in the, the social media campaigns mm. that, that MPs are on the receiving end of, whether that's on, on sewage, on animal sentience, on the Working Time Directive. We remember that quite early on in, in, uh, in the Johnson government base floated the idea of revising EU labor laws. There was a, a huge backlash and the idea was quietly parked. Uh, we know that the Labour Party uh, exploited a uh, concern around the US free trade agreement in 2019 uh, to great effect. So you broadly, you know, British public opinion is, is in the place of, of wanting to be Europeans without the EU. They want to be at the European Union, but really stick to much of, of, of the regulatory framework that it offers non-benefits of social market access. That's quite a bad combination, really. The, you know, the, 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 it, it is um, you know, sort of accepting many of the obligations of EU membership with with, with few of the benefits. However, um, you know I wouldn't I wouldn't overplay this the importance of mm. public opinion one one is that actually the feed-through is is kind of uh, imperfect you know, would, would one actually lose an election if you did revise the working time directive or or, or the uh, you know the, uh, the, the the way in which uh, chicken is prepared I'm I'm not convinced you would I, I guess the defeat of Jeremy Corbyn would, would be a factor on that mm. th- the bigger thing is actually that when we think about regulatory policy it doesn't actually reflect lend itself to to these sorts of civilizational binaries uh you know you, when you're talking about things like reforming the mm-hmm. aircraft slots regulation that governs how you know, which airlines gets which landing slots at which airport uh you, know, you might merge Directive or the reform of procurement mm-hmm. laws these aren't things that actually uh, lend themselves to easy combative campaigns because it, it's small bore it's it's um it's nuanced it you know it doesn't it, it shouldn't and doesn't excite political mm-hmm. passions um i think i think the bigger constraint on you know where why have we ended mm-hmm. up in this position is actually that a lot of, uh, sort of the, you know, the elite public debate around it sorry the, the elite opinion debate around it it's it's is captured in 2016 in that you have, you know, one faction which, uh, you know, wildly overstates the mm. opportunities of re-regulation, you know, this idea of a, you know, a second Thatcherism. You have another side which paints, you know, a slightly sort of dystopian vision of, of, of what re- re-regulation might mean or, or that believes that, you know, the idea of the opportunities of mm. Brexit is, is an oxymoron and there's nothing more to it than, than, you know, changing the crown on the pint glass. Mm. Actually, the space is sort of, both bigger and smaller than each side would claim, but it's, it, it is um, iterative, small ball uh, work which will take many, many years, arguing over quite sort of um, you know, technical changes that over, over a period might add up to something worthwhile. Um, I, you, know, you, you don't see either political, so you don't see either public opinion or, or, or really sort of opinion in the House of Commons um you know cohering around that space so it, it is um you know it, it is unfortunately almost frozen into in the spirit of 2016 2017 and a lot of this
0: so matthew i'm going to come to questions i'm going to come first to you because i think you're best placed i'm not going to say well placed necessarily to answer this um and then any other panelists who want to come in top rank question from andy day with a bit of an extra one from peter may is um, about what Labour might do. Uh, We've talked a bit about this, you know, being not quite the space that either side really, really would paint it. But uh, Andy's asking, given Labour have said they won't re-enter the customs union or single market, what are the most effective realignments they could propose to ease trade? I assume that's this agenda of making Brexit work, the new three-word slogan that Mm. they've done. And Peter May is suggesting they might start by re-entering Erasmus. Do you see, do you see, I'm going to cut, then come on to Robert for whether the Conservatives should be worried about Labour making an issue, making Brexit work, but where do you think making Brexit work, you know, actually might potentially have most political purchase or indeed most economic purchase? I'm,
5: I'm, I'm conscious I might be wrong, uh, so I wouldn't <laughs> want to say categorically. I, I the Labour Party has, I should know this, uh, the Labour Party has said it would seek um, an agreement on on SPS, on on food and farm standards essentially, which would uh, make trade, you know, particularly across the Irish Sea, but also with with the the European Union, generally easier. Uh, It would seek to look at things like the uh, mutual recognition of professional qualifications, so the the ease with which uh, an auditor can work at uh, KPMG in Germany. Um, I mean, it, politically, it's an interesting space, actually, because it, it, it does raise the question of whether, you know, in the same way that Johnson held together a, a Leave coalition whilst a Remain coalition fra- fragmented in, in 2019, if Starmer can do the opposite of that and hold together a Remain coalition, insofar as, like, Leave-Remain is still salient questions in 2019, and then start to actually eat into the Leave vote because you know, the salience of Brexit has decayed in 2023, 2024. That's, a, that, that's actually quite an interesting sort of political um, proposition. I mean, I, I think either Starmer's, Starmer's bet is that he, he, he doesn't actually need to move that far on Brexit you know, in, in that, you know, there are relatively few votes. His bet is that in 2023, 2024, there are relatively few votes in saying that one would rejoin the European Union, you know, that the, the, the whole sort of second referendum campaign can be parked. I, I suspect that will probably pay off.
0: Robert, where are the Conservatives seeing this? With sort of Labour starting to talk a bit about Brexit again, this idea that they could iron out some of these sort of annoyances that nobody voted particularly not to have an alignment on SBS or whatever, yet it's causing quite a lot of pain for seafood exporters or in the Irish Sea. Now, are you worried about this as a, as a line? In Is there actually anything behind this view that some Conservatives think we need to diverge a long way and quickly to prevent the sort of Brexit that David Frost negotiated being undone and watered down?
4: I, I think it's a really interesting uh, straw in the wind of what's happened in British politics in the last couple of months that this question has been asked. This is genuinely the first time anyone has seriously raised the issue of what the Labour think as a kind of like a, as a like a major factor in um, in British politics for quite a while. Um, I, I think the it's it's a good point I think uh, but especially about the, the need to sort of um, diverge further in case in case Labour get back in. I think the Tories still haven't, I'd say the Tories still haven't processed that um, that idea yet. Um, the, you know, the, the, the polls are there at the moment, but they've still got an 80-seat majority. The election's still a couple of years away. So the, the debate about um, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, uh, for example, that's not being carried out with a kind of, you a view of like oh, oh no if we don't do something nice if we don't make if we don't make nice with the eu then we open up a flank to labor it's the, the no. argument as to whether as to whether you you push hard on that or whether you 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 um you take you you try to reach an accommodation that's much more about um like what it will mean for the conservatives what it will mean for business what it will mean for northern ireland um at, 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 at the moment
0: so just worried about their relationship with business robert i mean brexit does seem to have driven quite a wedge between the government and what we used to you know as the party of business as we always used to think the conservatives saw themselves over over this and over businesses please for a deeper deal and a degrees of alignment. Yeah I think I, I think it has
4: done it has done some damage and I think one of the reasons the um one of the reasons the supply chain crisis um w- wasn't picked up earlier because it was because it sounded like the same companies or the same same business lobby groups making the same complaints as they did about about um, about brexit itself um so um I mean like you know uh, on Thursday um, I will be I will be sharing a stage with the director general of the of the CBI and under the headline are we actually serious about growth you know that's that's probably you know that's <laughs> sort of a, a sign of, you know that the, the the business community is not feeling entirely or at least the, the bit of it that the CBI represents is not feeling entirely um, ent- entirely um lo- c- c- love bombed by by the government I think um I mean, I think partly that's just about the pandemic, um, which sort of inter, you know, blasts all these things into mm. smithereens. But, they, you know, there was a real small business family business agenda that was, you know, in the manifesto and it was going to be mm. at the heart of business relations. That kind of just ran into sand. I mean, the government's defense is that they spent 400 billion pounds, you know, bailing out all of these companies and paying the wages of all their staff, um, which is a which is a fair point. But I think, yeah, I mean, the you know, it come April, we get um, we get some quite whacking tax rises on. You know, corporate. You know, the, the NICs rise is a is a tax rise on business as well as customers, which is often forgotten. The corporation taxes are going up. You know, they still haven't announced what's happening with the investment super deduction. You know, we CPS uh, work with the Tax Foundation in the US has found we go basically overnight we go to having one of the least competitive business tax rate regimes in the world, uh, or the developed world. Um, once all these things happen, so there's clearly a lot of um, a lot of uh, concern about that.
0: That's quite interesting, the extent to which the EU was worried about us diverging downwards on uh, on business taxation. We've actually gone in the opposite direction since we, we left. Jonathan, a question from Adam Isaacs. Um, he's asked what prospects are there for any degree of honesty about the costs as well as the benefits of leaving the EU. Um, uh, perhaps focusing a bit less on the honesty, if there are any comments, and that would be interesting in your role as a former senior civil servant. But if we look at the balance sheet of costs and benefits, the government today in its brief statement, haven't read the 100 pages, was talking about a billion benefits from reducing red tape. But against that, on the other side of the ledger, some might say that Brexit has actually dumped quite a lot of red tape on businesses that were in the business of exporting to the EU or employing EU labour. So where do we think the balance sheet stands at the moment?
2: well uh, I was quite amused by the one billion figure because of course, here vote leave talked about thirty three billion pounds of brexit red tape, which uh, was potentially going to be removed that was in the leaflet they sent to uh, sent to everybody, and it was based on a particularly um badly uh, uh, um, argued open europe uh pamphlet uh, paper um, from two thousand and fifteen or so, which added up all the costs of notional costs of European regulation without bothering to assess the benefits of European regulation and which got um, most of the the numbers wrong anyway, as I recall. Um, So we had these sort of fantasy numbers for the benefits of deregulation. I mean, my prior um, has always been that the net economic benefits, there may be other benefits and costs from relaxing standards or whatever, Uh, or indeed increasing standards in various areas, the the best estimate that economists could make of the net cost and benefits of the deregulation agenda post-Brexit would be zero um, because uh, there would be relatively small costs uh, offset by relatively small benefits. That could still be wrong. There could be some big benefits or big costs out there, but I've seen no reason to change my view um, that uh, yes, there might be a billion in benefits Um, but there's probably a billion in costs as well. There's the costs, as Robert said, of uh, um, of what will probably be a less economically efficient state aid regime post Brexit, for example. Um, So uh, I think we're back to to saying that the main costs and benefits will be, as you said, Jill, on the trade front. Um, And there we know that the the net impact is going to be a substantial net cost to the UK economy. And again, so far at least, we have no reason to believe that the estimates that economists produced pre-Brexit or pre-the deal um, are hugely wrong. We're st- you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but the idea that it's going to impose costs of perhaps four or five percent of GDP um, is cons- over the long term is consistent with what we've seen, with what we've seen so far, and that you know. And so I think we're still back. We're back there. Look, the main economic impact of Brexit is the impact of increased trade restrictions with the EU and the damage that will do to the UK trade, both through and hence to the UK economy, both through reduced imports and root exports. Um, and so far, at least, there's no evidence to, to suggest that other things, whether that's deregulation or trade with the rest of the world, um, are going to make more than a pretty marginal impact either way on that. So I think we're, we're still there in terms of what we think the net cost of Brexit will be.
0: So if anyone else is keen to leap in on net costs, Joel, come in.
1: Um, so I think the, the interesting and probably most kind of under-discussed thing when you talk about where the UK wants to be in terms of deregulation, moving away from Brussels regulation is the irony that even getting rid of regulation you know having a lighter touch economy mm. actually increases bureaucracy in the short term and when we're looking at diversions there often mm. are short-term costs even if there might be longer term gains um to give one example the uk is moving to its own mm. uk ca um, manufacturing mm. stamp which is replacing the euce stamp um and just moving all these businesses over onto the new uk regime mm. is taking years the deadline's already been delayed by a year and another six months and in some cases, they reckon, you know, up to 60 years, complete amount of time it would take to stamp every single product in certain sectors with the right mark. And this is all for the case of simply copying something we were doing yeah. into the in the EU into the UK. If you want to do something more radical in terms of regulating medical devices hmm. or something like that, you need to establish an architecture. You need businesses to understand what they need to do. You need them to go through the new um, UK regime to make their products compliant with the UK market, and for you need to make international producers aware of that. And there's a whole host of practical difficulties which are associated with even theoretical liberalisation of the regulatory architecture. So if you think about doing this across multiple mm. sectors, um, it's going to take years before you see any kind of potential benefit from your lighter touch regime. It's probably a decade down the line, and it's very very difficult for any government to you know have that much time and be willing to bear that much short-term pain for businesses saying, we can't keep up with what you're demanding us to do. This is costing us, you know, the uh, big business says it would, they estimate it would cost them a million pounds a year if we lost our EU data adequacy agreement, which would be the consequence of um, moving away from GDPR regulations. So there are heavy, heavy short-term costs for potential long-term benefit. And yeah, when you look at someone like Boris Johnson in his current political situation, does he have the capital to pursue that pain? He certainly doesn't. Would Rishi Sunak, Liz trust, have the want to be suddenly pushing on with those reforms, the pain that comes with that when you've got an election two years down the line? Mm. I'm not sure they would. So that's the single biggest challenge, I would say, to ever trying to fundamentally remake um, yeah, the British economy.
0: That's, uh, that's very interesting. Well, let's look at an area where we can do things differently because of Brexit, which is trade policy. Sarah, Michelle Egan's asked, uh, in terms of trade agreements, where are you seeing some innovations or most most of them roll over based on the standard EU template? Well, Michelle, most of them today are standard EU rollovers, but we have got one or two new ones. And we know that the UK has always thought that one of the features of independent trade policy would be to do much more for UK services, uh, because that's the big UK interest and more than a giant sort of homogenized EU interests. So is there proof in the pudding that we can do more for UK services in, say, UK, Australia, or the slightly revised agreement with Japan? Sarah?
3: Yeah, so um, I think the first thing to say about trade and services is that the issues are quite different than they are for goods. So it's not about customs, controls, and quotas. It's really a question of regulatory alignment or or not alignment. Um, And there's some good reasons for that. Um, You know, you want to know that a doctor operating in your jurisdiction has the required regulatory um, certificates to practice safely. So I think we we need to kind of almost take a step back and think, you know, what's the purpose here? So when we're looking at free trade agreements and services, we're looking really essentially at who can deliver what type of service where. And um, and as Matthew said, one of the areas where um, the UK has lost market access with the EU is in relation to the mutual recognition of professional qualifications. So this was um, an ask for the UK. I think there was quite a lot of a sen- a sense at the time that the UK had some quite interesting asks and important asks here um, in the Brexit trade negotiations, but it didn't make it through into the TCA. that means that a a lawyer or an auditor qualified in the UK has many more restrictions in terms of what they can do um, in the EU. In terms of new trade deals, the impact overall um, of new trade deals that the UK has struck is is showing a small, very small economic um, gain compared to potentially um, lost um, trade with the EU. Um, And in services, there are Mm. some examples of some innovations in these new deals. So the UK-Australia deal, for example, does have some um, innovation around the mobility of young professionals, Mm. particularly lawyers. Um, But I'm I'm being quite cautious Mm. here because on the one hand, that increases potential mobility for Mm. for UK lawyers. Mm. On the other hand, research shows that trade remains deepest usually with your closest geographical partner so even in an era Mm. of zoom and digital working Mm. it still remains the case that trade is usually deepest with your nearest nearest partner and for the uk that that would be um, the eu similarly japan has some um, interesting clauses in it in relation to data localization and where data needs to be stored Mm. Um, so I think if you're looking for innovation in trade deals and um, in services, I would be looking for what happens around digital trade data and the mobility of individuals who are providing those services. Mm-hmm. So far, I think the, there are some early mm-hmm. signs of some um, innovations in that area mm-hmm. from the UK. That shouldn't be surprising. The UK is a services powerhouse and stands to gain a lot if it can liberalized services trade but the actual impacts of those um, so far and what we might expect at least in the short term i think are quite minimal
0: um, that's really interesting sarah the quantum question about uk switzerland i wonder very quickly you might just say is this are we about to see the emergence of a new uk switzerland relationship and what will that do to switzerland's relationship with the eu
3: So, yeah, um, this really hinges quite significantly on professional services, so things like um, legal services, but also um, financial services. And it's not surprising there's been a lot of interest here. So now uh, Switzerland and the UK are major service economies, Uh, internationally orientated service economies, so not particularly servicing their own domestic markets, but internationally open service economies sitting on the outside um, of the EU. So there's quite a lot of um, interesting parallels between the two economies. And on financial services, this is an area where there's been quite a lot of activity post-Brexit, with um, both sides committed to um, securing a mutual recognition of regulation and their supervisory regimes. That's quite significant because um, if um, if you have mutual recognition between the UK and Switzerland, it's taking place without the wider framework of um, the single market that the EU has to support a similar set of activities. So you would essentially be seeing a version of passporting, but without the requirement for freedom of movement that the EU has. And I think it's that kind of innovation in terms of trade regulation that is attracting some interest. Um, I think as well, there was some evidence um, in the run up to the agreement with the TCA that the EU was looking to be quite clear about how temporary equivalence regimes were with Switzerland. Mm. It's that sounding something of a warning shot to the UK that even if you secure equivalence decisions under the EU's mm. approach to equivalence, that can be revoked with 30 days notice. And there's quite a lot of noise around that in the run up. And um, to the T- to the TCA. So I think for me, the interest there is that it would um, be quite innovative to have this kind of passporting mm. and mutual recognition outside of um, freedom movement. Mm. There clearly is some scope mm. for enhanced trade there because of the similarity between um, the two economies. And I think that's why the EU would be watching that quite closely. It's quite a new the EU is in quite an unusual position as a trade block now having its major financial centre offshore or outside its regulatory orbit. That's very different to um, the US, for example, where its its major financial centre is clearly
0: within its own regulatory control. It's a very interesting sort of question. I'm not sure whether any of you are up for chatting about this, but uh, we've got uh, some questions about actually what does the loss of the UK mean to the way in which the EU develops regulation does it mean that the EU will go in a different direction the UK was quite influential in the EU dare we say Has anyone got any views on that Robert
4: well I mean, I mean Matthew would be a better placed uh, mm. on, on this as, as, but um mm. and Andy Jonathan um but the um, I mean one thing that's striking I think is that um, since the since the UK's departure it, it has actually it, it 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 didn't seem to pro- provoke any soul searching in the mm. EU. It was strange that the, the one of its largest members le- deciding th- to leave was was sort of written off as oh those crazy mm. Brits rather mm. than oh dear maybe we're doing something wrong. But it does see- it, it does feel like there has been a, a slight sort of course correction, not least because of the potential competitive mm. pressures from the mm. UK. So it's actually it's actually possible that the EU will get around to fixing the god awful mess that is solvency two um, before the <laughs> UK can come up with its own uh, its own lighter touch uh, version of that.
0: Matthew, do you think that the EU is likely to move in a sort of different direction to the counter faction in which the UK had stayed and retained an influence there?
5: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to overstate it because uh, you know there's a risk of uh, you know seeing things through uh, Union, Union Jack <laughs> uh, glasses, uh, and I wouldn't want to do that. However, um, you know, so, so the UK contribution to sort of EU lawmaking was, was you know, was obviously. Uh, large from the you know the genesis of the single market and it, and it kind of fell into three forms one was sort of mm. you know uh suggesting and devising and and helping to be the architect of of whole regimes you know, of themselves the mm. uh, state aid being one uh, the the rich uh regime for chemicals being uh the other um obviously it was you know within the the balance of power within policy making the uk was often a sort of a you know the center of a civil uh, sort of liberalizing caucus and actually you know the, the uk just played quite a large role in making laws work better so you know just the, the just the, the the fine ball revising and, and thinking mm. about the functioning of of you know proposals from the commission you know which, not necessarily about blocking things or changing mm. the direction but actually just helping the thing work well uh you know the, the, the uk didn't play an, an unsubstantial role so i think you, Rob's right that actually one of the interesting sort of dogs that has embarked in, on, on breaks that mm-hmm. actually has been this discussion about what what, what does it mean for mm-hmm. EU policy making and one, one of the genuinely open questions uh, is in cases where the UK might um, have interesting ideas particularly mm-hmm. around new sectors what mm-hmm. what impact that, that actually has on, on the EU whether, whether the UK Lord Frost said this and people mm-hmm. sort of Thought it was rather laughable. I don't. I don't think it is entirely laughable to say that actually, if the UK is an innovator, do, does that actually help inspire any thinking uh, within the, the EU? Twenty-seven. I, I think that's. I, I. don't know what the answer to that is. I think it's an open question, but I, I think it's. You know, I don't think it's something to be dismissed entirely.
0: So one of the things that I think is very interesting, Matthew, is this idea that the UK might lead in some of these sort of greenfield areas. I think Rob was saying that that's actually where there's more productive than looking at the back stock Of EU regulation, whereas Giles said we've already sort of incurred the compliance costs of getting used to that regime. But what do you think the chance is if we develop an innovative approach to AI or autonomous vehicles or something I haven't even thought of yet, um, that we can sort of back transfer that into the EU? Because whatever happens, there's still a bigger market than the UK is and the real gains will be if that sort of you know that if we sort of reverse the line, the EU aligns with our innovative way, and we've stolen a march, and our manufacturers and service providers are all good to go and take mm. over the EU market. She said, "Is there any real prospect of a London effect displacing a Brussels effect?"
5: I mean, I guess, I guess the way you might think about it is that often a lot of these these. The um, the way in which you you regulate these new industries is actually it's it's about problem solving and it's something that UK regulators have often been quite good at. In that you have um, genuine open questions such as you know how uh, how do you ensure for autonomous vehicles? You know where where does where does the burden of responsibility lie? Where you know where, how do you, how do you support uh, resolve a, an insurance dispute in between two two driverless cars? And actually you you just have to produce an answer and you have to solve it and and if the UK can be mm. somewhere which is answering and solving uh, it's big if, but if the UK mm. is somewhere that can resolve those questions uh, earlier before the EU regime does, then that's something that makes the UK and an, you know an attractive place to do business. And then yeah, I mean it is it is an interesting and genuine open question whether you do see any sort of London effect by which uh, you know those answers which are drawn mm. up in London do become you know, adopted it elsewhere. I, I can't think of any examples where, where we have seen that so far, but I, I think it's, you know, it, it is one of the big sort of ones to watch with Brexit.
0: Sure. Did any of our authors come up with an area where there might be a London effect?
1: Um, none of them did, but I have one, if that's oh. any good. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is, I think AI is a particularly interesting test case here. So the EU is uh, making quite a big play in terms of it's come out with a set of new AI regulations are not enforced yet, but there's a plan to basically govern more strictly how you use AI. So mm-hmm. rules around transparency, if you're using mm-hmm. a chatbot when you're you mm-hmm. know, talking to your bank, you will be told if you are talking to a robot, that kind of thing, which makes the process less murky, less gloomy. Um, and there are two ways of looking at the way this could go. The one theory is the Brussels effect theory, which is that because the EU is setting the regulations on AI, the UK will simply have to follow because it's got a much larger market on its doorstep, which Mm. it wants access to. To give a practical example, if you're developing a chatbot AI in the UK, even if you want to sell that technology to China, um, to a Chinese company so that they can produce a piece of technology, Mm. if they want to then sell that technology back into the EU market, they have to make sure that the AI, which came from the UK initially, was compliant with these new EU standards. So there's going to be a big, big pull effect on businesses to make sure all AI is compliant with the EU if they want to sell into that market. And the UK, a much smaller market by comparison, you might think, okay, and personally, I do think this is the most likely effect, is the Mm -hmm. UK will end up feeling somewhat obliged to follow uh, EU regulatory standards. The other argument is that, um, you know, the UK will be that slightly more innovative testing ground just outside of the eu where you can do things in a slightly more permissive way be a bit more experimental with your ai Mm. and then if you want to then sell that into the eu you you know you get rid of the the small elements which might not be compliant with eu regulation for example if there's some facial recognition technology in there that's not going to cut it in the eu market you chuck it and you sell in minus that to me that seems slightly aspirational and slightly utopian but those are the two clashing theories. Um, generally, the Brussels effect has won out in things like data privacy so far. Maybe AI is some kind of, you know, uncharted territory where things are gonna change, but I remain skeptical.
2: I don't okay. think it's implausible yeah. to say that, uh, um, you to argue, and certainly I would hope this would <laughs> be the case, that our slightly more liberal approach to, <laughs> e, to non-EU immigration will, over time, represent as a competitive advantage with respect to the EU, that they will, in in either at an EU level or an individual country level that they will feel uh, um, some obligation to try and catch up with. If we are a more attractive place for uh, um, people, you know, uh, skilled workers from abroad um, to move to, um, that is a competitive advantage in something the EU, at least if they are thinking about this and, and uh, uh, properly um, ought, to put, ought to try and, 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 and you know, because there are a number of EU countries which have pretty uncompetitive and illiberal migration regimes, quite frankly, for people coming outside the, from outside the EU. There is some pressure there. Um, to give a recent example where I think there is a discernible London effect Um, Although it really reflects the extent to which, as Matthew said, we are just a fundamentally a European country Mm -hmm. in terms of attitudes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, if you look at the um, EU's recent draft directive on the regulation of gig economy workers, employment rights for gig Mm -hmm. economy workers. um, Nobody has, you know, nowhere does it say this, but it is very clear to me from reading it that it is very heavily influenced by the Supreme Court ruling about Uber. They use the Supreme Court here, set out a framework for deciding um, under what conditions gig economy workers um, uh, should be considered as um, employees rather than as self-employed. And uh, the the draft directive from the commission actually to a very large extent takes their frame of analysis and and, uh, um, recreates it at a European level. Now that's not more yet. Um, But it seems to me, uh, you know, to illustrate the extent to which there is this sort of still this sort of common intellectual framework in terms of how we approach things like labour market regulation. that is going to stay after Brexit uh, uh, because we are just fundamentally, we do have quite similar social models, despite all the protestations to the contrary on both sides of the channel.
0: Sarah, um, financial services is a bit of a battleground while we were in the EU um, you mentioned now that the EU would feel very uncomfortable that its major financial center was effectively offshored. So is this an area where actually the fact of Brexit might drive a lot of divergence and different approaches in the EU, more of a sort of you know French mentality shift and basically excluding the UK to grab that financial as much of that financial center back into the EU?
3: So yeah, I mean in some um parts of financial services, the EU has been very clear that that um essentially onshoring financial services from the e- e- from the UK to the EU, sorry, um, is its aim. So we've seen this very recently with respect to the um one outstanding um equivalence decision which relates to clearing. Um Marie McGuinness, the um, EU Commissioner for Financial Services, has indicated that this is this is due to expire. Um, in June this year and it's now likely to be extended until June 2025 but at the same time the EU is proposing to launch a consultation um, on measures aimed at making the EU a more an attractive Mm. clearing hub so you see quite clearly there um, an aim to to move um, financial services activity. I think there's a really interesting set of questions about what form and approach to financial services regulation the EU seeks to develop post-Brexit Um, I think it's very clear that the UK was a really important actor in in the ways that Matthew's articulated more generally um, within financial services and in the EU. I think there's another piece of the jigsaw, though, for financial services, which perhaps builds on some of Joelle's comments in that um, I think it's important to locate discussions about UK EU trade and regulation within the international arena, particularly in financial services. Um, So there's been some concern that kind of fragmentation between the UK and the EU might actually lead to um, financial services activity relocating to the US, for example, as businesses sort of seek to move there to overcome additional costs with dual reporting between the UK and the EU. There's some evidence of that happening at least early on in the Brexit deal with relation to derivatives. But that international angle is also important in terms of regulation. Um, and the UK may be able to shape EU regulation, not, not directly, but through with the EU, but by seeking to position it's the UK's regulatory approach as the kind of global standard of regulation in that particular area, and then trying to encourage the EU to follow that, that global standard. And that's been quite a common leitmotif um, in the UK's approach to financial mm. services more generally. So kind of shifting scales, if you like, seeking to... Mm itself as the global global leader and then encouraging competitors to follow that and I think there's some evidence of that type of activity taking place in relation to green finance um, at the moment it's a really important set of questions mm. that the UK the EU but also other countries are grappling with about what counts as green when it comes to to finance it's a really important set of questions because the answer to it Um, is meant to prevent greenwashing, so kind of passing Mm. an activity off as green when it isn't. But at the moment, there's multiple standards internationally Mm. about what counts as green, and that's costly for businesses. So there's something of a a set of challenges for Mm. any country seeking to operate in Mm. green finance in terms of having its standards become the global standard with respect to, to green finance. I think it's in areas like that that we need to remember that UK-EU regulatory dialogues are taking place within a, a global framework.
0: Okay, that's a very useful reminder. Robert, we've got a question here um, from Joe Marshall about Lord Frost's departure. I think Lord Frost made quite a stirring speech, I think, to the CPS, um, and then left uh, not very long later. Maybe his resignation was already in the Prime Minister's tray. Uh, But he was a very discernible champion of this sort of post-Brexit opportunities agenda. and seemed to think he had a lot of work to do, but he's now disappeared. And the prime minister has given the negotiating responsibilities to Liz Truss, but sort of left the Brexit Opportunities Unit a bit orphaned in the cabinet. I mean, are you worried about that? Um, Do we need a champion within government for all these opportunities post-Brexit? Or is it now so, well, in Whitehall, we'd say mainstreamed? which often means forgotten.
4: Um, So on, on, on Lord Frost, I genuinely think that he left, that he didn't just leave because of... Uh, you know because he was because of the northern Ireland protocol and the regulation and things i i think the the from, from everything he said from everything those around him have said i think the, the the coronavirus restrictions the sort of the general drift of government he just wasn't he he just wasn't com- comfortable um that said i do i mean as i, I mean I, I wrote, i've been into economy about this um, mm. <laughs> it's helpful of you to to team me up for it um the I, I think you know without him there there's definitely a less of a, less of a push um and I think, you know, what happens to the Brexit Opportunities unit, unit is quite key. Unless you have uh, you know, quite a powerful central unit, a sort of grit in the oyster, um, pushing and nagging at the rest of the Whitehall with a powerful you know champion, at uh, the head of it, uh, then inevitably this, this agenda gets downgraded. Um, one, one sort of really interesting, essentially, and I think a, a lot... The, the conversation about this as as being about Brexit regulation is, I think, missing the point. It's about how we regulate full stop. And there's a really interesting, I mean, we, we've been doing a big project on this mm. at the Centre for Policy Studies, which is uh, hopefully coming out fairly soon. W- what happens in the UK is essentially ministers and civil servants make decisions and then then write up the regulatory impact assessment mm-hmm. once they've done that in order to justify the decisions they've already made. Um Whereas in the US, for example, um, what will happen is a federal office will say, we want to do this thing, they will put it into the OMB, the sort of very, very powerful central budget organisation. And that will send basically like has, has sort of packs of, 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 of sort of ravenous wolves um, in the form of uh, economists who will go over this thing and just basically throw it back at them and say, no, this is going to cost too much money, your sums are wrong. We don't have any equivalent of that kind of function in the UK. We have people like the NAO who come over long after, come mm. along, sort of, you know, six months, a year after the fact, and go, "Oh, that was a bit of a crap decision you made back then." Like so, and I think um, one, I think one of the things they want to do with this Brexit, um, with the with the white paper that just been put out, is to try, is to try and shift that. But in you know, you're you're working against an awful lot of inertia. Mm. I mean, there's a there's a line. One of my colleagues has sort of just texted me something pointing out that, so, you know, they say. Um, we considered a one in two out target for regulation, but effectively what it says is. Uh, but then we realised we had net zero coming, and that was impossible. So uh, you know, the, 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 there's a whole. I, I think this is this is going to be a live issue for, for quite a while. But 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 you know. Even that, even whether whether it's one billion or thirty three billion, which is an excellent stat from from Jonathan. Like like the, the post Brexit bit of this is not the is not the big slice of the cake. It's I think there's a, just a general thing about how how we regulate now, and I think that's the that's the key battle, battleground for me.
0: Okay, well we've got uh, we're four minutes away from the end, so just to bring you all <laughs> together, uh, I'm going to just ask you all to give a view on. What should we watch out for? Where's the really interesting divergence action going to be in the next two years until a general election? Let's forget all the sort of political frippery that we've been distracted by, but in terms of policy, what's going to be really, really interesting? So very brief answers so we can finish on time. Sarah, where's the interesting policy action in the next couple of years?
3: So for me, the really interesting question is how much is the government prepared to talk about deregulation and regulatory divergence of the city? There's some quite obvious areas for divergence, particularly around bankers bonuses, for example, that it's steered clear of. I think because of the politics of being um, seen to be supporting London and the South East in an era of levelling up. So for me, the big question is, to what extent does it does it push for city deregulation? and How does that fit with its wider regional economic policy? Okay, Jonathan.
2: I, I do see um, GDPR as a sort of test case, mm-hmm. although I don't pretend to understand it or to understand what the mm-hmm. precise cost and benefits, but it seems to me that it's something big where potentially we could probably do a better job ourselves, but there are also clearly significant costs and risks to diverging uh, because there is this area, one area where there genuinely obviously is a Brussels effect. Um, so are we going to bite the bullet and try and do that? Um, and if so, does it work or does it all uh, uh, end up as a, as a terrible mess? Uh, so that I think is a really interesting one.
0: Matthew. Um, I'm,
5: I'm gonna say State A and uh, for the reason that we, we, we think, I mean, obviously there is a, a ra- one of the most radical new bits of legislation is the State A framework, which really has torn at the Russell's rule book. Uh, and the most important thing to remember is that state aid is not just about uh, uh, suitcases of cash to ailing companies, <laughs> but uh, increasingly in, in the European context, it's about tax breaks. And it is about what you use to stop uh, governments giving enormous tax breaks to people like Apple, IKEA, Fiat, uh, and all the others. So uh, the UK government now has, has uh, really a lot more flexibility to do things really radically different and how it chooses to use it is is, is going to be very, very interesting indeed.
0: Joel? I'm
5: going
1: to say agriculture, uh, which always Mm -hmm. gets people's uh, pulses racing, I know, but um, for two reasons. Firstly, that um, what the UK is trying to do in terms of moving away from the common agricultural policy is a pretty radical reform. There was a very good case to be made Mm -hmm. that, Uh, the system wasn't that well suited to UK farming and moving away from a system that's rewarding effectively as much production as possible to a system where you're rewarded for pursuing net zero sustainability benefits. is not only a radical departure, but it's also potentially a really good example of how the UK can get ahead in pursuing net zero as well, because they're kind of, you know, coexisting uh, objectives. And the second reason why it matters is because, and this is, really an indictment of mm-hmm. policy debate in general is it's um we haven't talked about different attitudes in different parts of the uk and agriculture is a, dissol- a devolved policy england is potentially doing something mm-hmm. different to wales or scotland and therefore mm-hmm. you increase the risks of internal divergence competition between uh, farmers in different parts of the uk that has all kinds of complications potentially coming from it and that's an under-discussed aspect of divergence in general is what it looks like if uh, internally
4: the uk starts to split apart
0: last word robert
4: yeah, and I, I, uh, that's a really important point. And the, the other thing we haven't mentioned is the Northern Ireland Protocol, which mm-hmm. is uh, just the Northern Ireland situation, which is a, hu- a huge um, a huge issue. In t- like if you want to diverge uh, you, and you end, mm-hmm. end up with a situation where one bit of the UK has a completely mm-hmm. different regulatory model to the, the other, mm-hmm. that's a huge issue. Um, Huge issue. Um, I think all of the examples given are great. Financial services ob- is obviously a big one. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing I'd add is, uh, is um, medical research, uh, clinical trials, life sciences, medical devices. I mean, I don't think we're going to be changing mm-hmm. the um the sort of the, the drug approval regi- regime Um but I think around that, you know, this is obviously something after COVID that has been identified as a, as a as a big area. The UK as a life scientist, is one of the UK's big areas. I think it's, again, it's another interesting mm-hmm. test case of whether we whether we grip the nettle and go for a, a divergent regime or whether 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 we just um, keep on with uh, trying to mirror the EU as closely as possible.
0: Okay, I'm going to thank all our panel there. That was uh, absolutely fantastic, really interesting and energising discussion about possibilities. For those of you that didn't have enough about uh, Scottish independence, rejoining the EU, potential borders, can I recommend our event on Thursday, which is going to be uh, looking at that. For those of you who are interested in how this might play with the new Conservative Coalition, we're discussing the Red Wall and some focus groups next week. Uh, But to close, can I thank all our fantastic panellists? Can I leave you all now to get to grips with that 100-page white paper or maybe a page and a half from Sue Gray, whichever is your preference? And thank you all very much for joining us today. And let's virtually applaud a fantastic discussion from our panellists. Thank you